guys, and welcome back to another episode of Sunday Sessions, Emphasis on the Sesh. It's your girl, April Squires, and we are back at it again this week for another episode. This week, we have another special guest on the show, and her name is Carrie Neal. Carrie, say hi. Hey. What is up? How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful, sunny day here in St. John's. How are you? I am doing lovely. It is a beautiful day. I don't think every time the date comes up in July, like I'm like July 14th and I'm like, oh, it's the 14th of July. And I'm like, fuck, it's the 15th of July. And I was like, God damn, it's going to be August and it's going to be fall. And then it's going to be winter. And then I'm going to be sad. <laughs> yes. Got to live it up all we can. Yeah. Right. So uh, give everyone a little information about yourself. Uh, I know you have a comic book store downtown. If you want to talk a little bit, a little about that, you want to talk about what you're involved with. Sure, yeah. Um, about a year and a half, I took over my dad's comic book store, Downtown Comics, on Docker Street in St. John's, and have been putting a bit of my own twist on it. I've got a whole little bookshelf of what we're calling revolutionary reads. Try to get some of that indie bookstore vibes in our downtown, as it's been missing for a while. I'm also, I'm on three boards. Um, I'm most active, I would say, with the Social Justice Cooperative in Newfoundland Labrador. We're like an anti-capitalist environmental organization doing stuff like challenging card culture and zero waste, um, mutual aid, really experimenting with a lot of different direct action and like policy change kind of stuff. I'm also on the board of Regents with Memorial University, just kind of like the governing body at the university. Um, so I like set salaries and policy and stuff. I'm also on the board of the Benevolent Irish Society, which is like the oldest nonprofit in Canada. Cool. Uh, it's like 200 years old. It's mostly like a social club, but they do like give money to like the Irish Kirby House, uh, which helps like uh, women who are survivors of sexual, of domestic violence or sexual assault and um, like this kids eat lunch program kind of thing. Cool. So you're busy. Very busy, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> And what is your background? Like, how did you end up getting involved with these like organizations? Like what kind of drove you to help other people? That is a good question. I guess I first became involved in activism, like in high school, I got involved in like Amnesty International, but I definitely think like my university education helped a lot. Like I did my undergrad in economics, but it was really like my master's in sociology that like helped me kind of understand how capitalism is killing us all uh both like you know degrading the environment and like exploiting our bodies and our time so I think that was really a big push for me like once I knew just how horrible everything is I couldn't really like look away having I think a community especially like with the social justice cooperative dedicated to the cause and motivated I think really encourages me to feel like what we're doing isn't I don't know, it can feel really like, you know, we're up against the odds, but having that community of support makes it feel more like realistic. I feel like anyone who starts any type of movement dating like all the way back till now, it's like, you know, there, it seems like what maybe what you're doing, it's like, maybe it doesn't have a big impact, but like, that's how the opposition group, like, that's how they want you to feel. They want you to think that your voice doesn't matter. They want you to think that what you're doing doesn't matter. No one really cares. And they just think that they can get away with doing bad things as long as no one calls them out for it. And then those who do call them out for it, they get really offended by them. And it's just funny because especially here in Newfoundland, I feel like there's so many dark, deep secrets within organizations, within government, within 
just like the hierarchy of how like systems work here. A lot of people have been getting away with being shitty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to absolutely. call it what it is. <laughs> Guys, now, mind you, we do love Newfoundland. <laughs> I feel like we do. We talk a lot of shit. But the reason we talk a lot of shit is because we want to improve it. We want to make this place innovative. We want to make people happier. We want people to have sustainable jobs, sustainable living, sustainable food. We And that's kind of what this episode is going to be about. We want to touch on policing. We want to touch a little bit on the challenges and like the different struggles within Newfoundland. And then also a very hot topic lately would also be housing, which we'll talk a little bit about later. So let's dive into the perks of being Newfoundland. So I like having friends around, family around. There's always someone you know, wherever you go, someone who always knows someone that you know. The weather is half decent (laughs) at best. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't get too hot or too cold. And I find the fog really like mystical. I love oh, I never really thought about the fog as being mystical before. I do like how if you're going down like the St. John's and like when you come in, like say past um, Signal Hill, like you can kind of see the fog like rolling in. I kind of get that whole mystical vibe you're you're giving me right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yesterday, like the fog came in and you couldn't see anything and then it just rolled back out. It was like, yeah, it was pretty incredible. It's like the movie The Mist. Yes. <laughs> So let's kind of dive into the first topic. Uh, so just like policing in Newfoundland, what's your uh, what's your take on that right now? Well, I mean, I think police everywhere is like a tool to protect private property and kind of keep uh, the poor in check. Uh, and I think Newfoundland and Labrador is like no different. You, I mean, you really see it in Labrador, I think, like the way like the RCMP like went into Indigenous communities and like killed their snow dogs in the 60s because they were like um considered you know wild animals and like dangerous but of course like they were not like they were something that people had bred these animals for years and years and like use them as tools and yeah I think that is pretty disgusting but we've also seen like some really interesting cases here in the past like decades on the islands like there was a case of Donnie Dunphy where this guy He was on social assistance and he was making these tweets um, that were at the time, actually our premier was a police officer. And he made this tweet that was considered threatening. If you read it like in context, it wasn't, but they sent a police officer to his house and he was shot and killed in his house. I don't think anyone was like charged for it. Like he, it was considered self-defense, but like, it's just you know, this police officer versus this dead guy. So we really have no idea what happened. I think that was like a really eye-opening event. And then um, more recently, it was the case of um, Doug Snowgrove. Doug Snowgrove, yeah. Yeah, took a woman home from George Street and like raped her in her house. She she had to go to court like multiple times. First, like they were saying like she wanted it. I think he eventually did get charged because she like appealed it so many times. But yeah, from what I understand, it was like a really traumatizing thing for her to go through. I mean, the rumor mill suggests that like it was, he was known as a predator. You know, the police really stood behind him. Like they showed up to those court cases to support him in uniform to say like, we've got your back. There's actually an article in the Telegram today about how there's like low morale in the police force and they're feeling like attacked. And it's like, well, good. Like you have been you know, oppressing people and, and like really doing violent things. And it's good that people are like finally having the courage, I think, Um, I think, especially after the Black Lives Matter movement to really kind of like push back and think more critically about like, what is the role of the police in our communities? 
Because I think, yeah, there are better ways that we can keep each other safe. I totally agree with that. Uh, she stood trial three times. And then, you know, it all came out in the wash that he went down. He picked her up at the club. Um, he brought her home. And at the end of the day, like, I'm a nurse. So if that had to happen while I was on duty and I had to do something like that to someone, that would be absolutely absurd. And whether people want to, whatever your standpoint on it, someone who was in power, had power in uniform, drove this person home and not in their right mind that they won't stop and say, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't go in. Like, why not just walk away from the situation, whatever your stance may be on it. And it's, it's so fucked up because I feel like it's scary because as a white society, we don't have really that same fear of police. I feel compared to, um, like the black lives matter movement, but we should all collectively gather all that anger and all that, those feelings that we're feeling about people being in power and taking advantage of that power it's super messed up. And, you know, people again, like I hate when someone does something so wrong and there was people in the trial saying, oh, you know, he, you know, he had a good education and he lived a good life and, you know, he would never, ever do something like that. Like that's not him. But at the end of the day, you don't have that person's brain. You don't have that person's thoughts. You have no idea what actually goes on. That's like, you could plead that case for every serial killer. Like, oh, they seem like a great guy, but little do you know, they're chopping people up in the basement. Like, it, you don't know until it comes out in the wash because you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, it's hard to get good stats on it, but there are a lot of cases of police officers who are like, you know, in domestic violence relationships. I think there was actually a case recently of a woman who was a police officer who was charged domestic violence. And it's like, who do you call in that situation? Like, you're going to call the police on the police? Like, can you trust that they'll actually do anything? Because there is such a culture of like, you know, we have to stand with each other and back each other which I think is I think to their detriment because if you're not holding each other accountable especially where you have so much power it you know it takes the whole ship down it does and like this whole thing of oh there's only a few bad apples and like not saying that the police force can't be better and not saying that everyone in the police force is bad however let's get away from just like oh well you know there's only a couple of bad people we can't blame everyone no we all collectively have to take it on it's like nursing there can't just be a few bad nurses we have to get rid of that we have to stop lowering our standard of where people should be we need to elevate it and it's like if you aren't going to be here and if you aren't going to serve like the public's best interest then we need to get rid of those people we need to set a standard that this will not be tolerated and I found it funny that after that incident happened with Jane Doe and Doug Snellgrove back, you know, 2017, and, and that went on a little bit after that, there was actually a dozen women that came forward about sexual assault allegations against eight RNC officers. And then mm -hmm. nine women had actually contacted their alleged uh, sexual assault, alleging sexual assault by the RNCMP officers and saying that the RCMP or RNC officers actually tried to get them to engage in sexual activity while giving them a ride home. And there was also like inappropriate workplace conduct that had also been reported with an alleged incident occurring back in 2015 and people I actually read that were close to the force have described widespread so across all barons uh sexual misconduct within the RNC and they said that those officers habitually drove downtown targeting civilians targeting people who aren't in their right minds to engage in sexual acts it's it just like how like why like I remember being downtown and standing up on the side of the road and you can you can and like you know the police officer there and like yeah they're there to break up fights and ensure whatever there are whatever but like I've heard them be in a group and I could you could hear them talking to one another about 
you or your friends like just over to the side like it's the weirdest most awkward thing ever that's so scary it's so scary I've heard too like they've been having trouble recruiting officers and so they've lowered their standards for training which is also very scary because you know they get paid like a lot of money they get given a lot of power you know it's hard to really call them out when they abuse that power I I know it's a big problem I have a friend who um, called 911 she was like gonna kill herself and she was like seeking support and the police showed up at her house and like pushed her to the ground and handcuffed her you know for someone who's having a mental health crisis it was like a very violent experience for her and it's like is this really like the best way that we're taking care of people in our community I you know I don't think so I think there are better ways and I've read some really interesting stuff about like transformative justice and how do we like hold each other accountable and keep each other safe And this idea that like we've kind of, you know, communities used to have more conflict resolution skills and we've kind of given up those skills for the like the state and the police to deal with our conflicts. And has that really helped our community like instead of, you know, kind of going after someone and saying like, hey, you raped this woman, this is so not okay, you need to make reparations for this. Now we're forcing that woman to go through like a court system where she's going to be like slut shamed and made to feel like, you know, it just didn't happen. Or of course, like there's the story, um, there's a, a man in Carboneer who like killed his daughter and cut the house on fire. They had tried to take away his custody because they knew he was violent, the mom's family. And, you know, the judge said like, oh, no, I don't like he seems fine. And then this like very horrible, horrific tragedy happened. And so like, instead of why, you know, I don't think we should be letting the state kind of decide for us who is safe, you know, like we, I think can tell and like deal, manage our own conflict without, you know, relying on this kind of like man who doesn't know the situation, who has biases to decide for us who, you know, who is safe in our communities. I think there's numerous uh, times where we can say that the justice system failed drastically. I remember a few years ago, the Dear Zachary documentary, basically the guy was a doctor. He went away. He came back. This woman followed him. She ended up jumping off a wharf, I think at CBS um, with the baby strapped her and they, his parents were there taking custody of the baby, trying to, while she was in jail. And there was this whole thing. And it was just saying how there were so many missteps. And I just don't understand why we don't have stricter laws against these things. And then, you know, if these people prove to be doing better, if they do, you know, let's, there has to be follow-up to that, like, you know, stricter laws, but then we can't just let these people fall through the cracks again. And that's how many people end up getting back into the justice system and into jail because there's no actual follow-up and teaching people, you know, giving them supports to be better. So why not go all the way with like a stricter law and then go from there instead of just like barely pushing on the gas pedal and giving these people all this freeway to fuck up. It's scary because all a lot of these events like the Quinn, because uh, I'm from Spaniards Bay. So when the lighted up Quinn thing happened and everyone came together as a community group, like that was such a tragic event that, like you said, did not need to occur. Someone needs to jump in. Someone needs to take power. And we need to start listening to people and taking people's allegations against others more seriously. Because who are other people to say that it did or did not happen? Absolutely. 
I think, yeah, there is such a culture of like not believing women and it's, I think, harmed a lot of women and has been used as a a tool to oppress women. And, you know, someone is going to say like, well, there's this one story about this woman who lied. Um, But I feel (laughs) like for every, you know, one story, there's like a hundred others, you know, and I think, um, yeah, generally, I think, you know, when you know the people in your community, you know who you can trust, you know, like, I think instead of putting it out for the state who doesn't know what's really happening to decide that like we really need to take more charge of like what's happening in our lives. I want to put it out there too, guys. If you do see a police vehicle downtown, uh, you know, obviously they're very identifiable vehicles. Um, if you do see a police officer down there parked on Dora Street, if they are down there for the sole purpose of offering people a ride home, please know that they are operating outside of their authority. That is not what they're there to do. Find another means home, but do not agree to this situation. And I think people going off on another little tangent, it's scary because unless you've been in a situation where you don't know how to respond like this situation, like being in a police car, being with a police officer, they, you know, maybe they have a gun on them, maybe they don't, but they're in a a position of power. And until you've been put to the position where you feel so small that you, you can't even say anything in that situation to make things stop, like, sexual assault, domestic abuse, whatever the case may be, you, it's so easy to be like, why didn't you say anything? It's like, I was froze. I, I, I didn't know what to do. And I think, you know, a lot of women, men, whoever, uh, have been in positions like that where they felt like they couldn't say anything. And then afterwards they're left dealing and picking up these pieces and I'll probably also feeling like no one's going to listen to me anyway. No one's going to believe me anyways. And then no one, had, like you said, no one ends up speaking out. And then so many stories go untold. And like you said, there's a thousand cases for that one person. If they want to argue, oh, like they're lying, like, well, let's, let's figure it out. Like, let's get to the bottom of that. But there needs to be more push for people to speak out and to not be afraid. And with regards to what you said about your friend with the mental health crisis, my friend works over on the West coast with mobile uh, crisis team. Um, She absolutely loves that job. I am a big advocate for mental health. I love mental health, even though I'm, uh, I'm doing eMERGE nursing right now. Psych is a passion of mine and sociology is a passion of mine. I just love to think about how people interact with their environment and then how that environment interacts with you, how that affects you as a person. We have to get away from people being at their lowest point and you're already feeling so low, you don't have any power. And then to take the highest form of power, which is the law and come in and, and, you know, get down on these people even more. And it's like, these people are scared. And like, yes, there's people that are violent and, and, and so forth. And that's another case, but like, why are the RCMP still responding or RNC, whoever still responding to these mental health patients? It doesn't make sense. And they're always met with force usually. Yeah, exactly. And like, we haven't even really gotten into the prison system. Like it's generally the poor and people with mental health uh, illnesses who end up in the prison system where, you know, it's like the H, the Her Majesty's Penitentiary is the male prison here in St. John's. And it is like a dungeon. It's the oldest prison in Canada. It's still in operation. And like prisoners are always saying like, it's cold, it's moldy, it's damp. And, you know, they're not getting like any supports there. There's no like rehab. There's actually this like the doctor there is like sadistic and takes everyone off of their like pharmaceutical drugs that they've been using to like treat their mental health illness. And so they're going through a trial. It's like actually really messed up. But it's tricky too, because like the province said that they were going to build a new hospital, new prison and it's going to be bigger, which of course means they're going to fill it with more people. (sighs) 
it's like, is that the solution? Like, can we just give people housing, like a basic income, make sure that they do have the support they need for their mental health illnesses? I think, I think so many, especially with HMP, it's like for crimes that are less than two years. So it is a lot of crimes so like poverty. There's violence as well. But I don't think putting all these violent men into a place together where they're not getting any like peer support is the, like how we're going to fix that problem either, you know? I know what people are saying too, they're like, oh, well, these people, like if you put them in a housing, they'll take advantage of it. But okay, because we just throw these people in a house and we don't do anything, there's no, there's real no follow-up. Like, and I know that, yes, it comes back on people. They do have to take responsibility. But if you're, like I've said a million times, if you're not mentally well, if we don't get you figured out that way first, how are we going to do anything else? How do you not expect people to fail? You know what I mean? It's a double-edged sword. Here, get better, get out of jail, but we're not going to fucking do anything for you to help you get better. And like, sure, some things may be in place initially, but there's no long-term follow-up mental health care. There's no long-term social support. There's no long-term things that make people stay off the streets and, and try to be better citizens. And as soon as someone does fuck up, God only knows what position they were in life when they did get into that situation. And now it's just like, you're going to kind of keep going down that road. They're going to keep kind of following in that path because it's the only way they know. And sometimes people getting into jail or, or these situations, that might be the best living conditions that they have. It's, it, it's the only time anyone maybe feels like they're taken care of. They're fed. They have a warm place to sleep ish. Like <laughs> it's just so messed up. Like it's just such a messed up system. And I just think we need to like completely reconstruct what we as a society are. And we know, you know, it's not the rich folks who are ending up there. And like, it's not like they are immune from like the same kind of like, you know, violent domestic violence situations or like drunk driving. And like, these are like reasons people end up in jail, but like, you know, sometimes somehow they can just pay a fine and get out of it. But um, yeah, we we like oppress the poor, I think, and, and try to keep them in line by putting them in these like awful prisons. But it, it doesn't actually like work. Um, people, it's, it becomes like a revolving door, I think a lot of the times, because yeah, people don't have good supports when they come out. And there's so much like intergenerational trauma that like leads people down these paths. Um, and I think, yeah, I read a really good book recently about um, the opposite of rape culture is nurturance culture and how we, like a lot of people have been raised in these like really unhealthy relationships where like, especially fathers just like aren't being very nurturing and loving to their children. And that causes people to kind of say, well, I don't need relationships. I don't need that emotional support. And they kind of cut themselves off from that. The only like emotions that they're allowed to feel is anger, which like leads to violence instead of like having, you know, love and care, which is like, if you want to truly be an independent person, you do need like that, those strong kinship networks. And to know that like you have someone to back, like to fall back on if you ever were to like get into trouble or like you know, things didn't turn out like you wanted to. Having strong kinship networks is so important to succeeding. And I, I think a lot of people don't have that. And that's how we end up in these like really awful situations. And you know, if you if people want to argue budget, if people want to argue time, I don't think they realize that short-term things aren't long-term, you know, achievements. You think that, oh, you got to front all this money right away. However, do you know how much money you're actually spending by 
these people having to go to court and having to do this and having to do that. And then going into the prison system, coming out of the prison system, like we're spending so much money by just trying to come up with short term solutions that if we actually try to come up with a long term plan of what will actually work and invest in it now, things would I think things would change drastically. And I it's, you can't how can it not and, and what's the harm in, in doing it and to think that we create money and i said this a million times but we don't have enough for everyone or to do the things that we want to do as a society to make us better how does that make sense and yeah where is the government money going like they just spent $150,000 on a chair for this like <sighs> museum that they are going to open a refurbished chair a refurbished very fancy um they also, you know, just gave a bunch of oil companies offshore, like $300 million blank check. Like that money did not go to the workers. It just went straight to these corporations who, you know, are billion dollar corporations. Like their CEOs are probably making $300 million a year. Like it was an absurd amount of money. And now of course the price of oil is skyrocketing and they're doing great. But, you know, six months ago, they're like begging us for money. But like, I feel like, we, you know, we have uh, socialism for the rich and, you know, privatization for the poor, uh, where the rich always get the handouts that they need and the poor kind of told like, oh, you got to pay back your serve. Like, yeah. You know? Like if you could just get back on that, that'd be really great. Uh, and you suck. <laughs> Way back when the highest paid CEO used to get paid, I don't know, let's just say 60, 30, 40% more than the lowest paid employee or highest paid employee. Now it's like a hundred times more like, and then uh, the worst part about it is the more money these people get, the more cuts that the, the lower income families get. Like how many times do you hear people say, oh, now they don't have dental. Oh no, they don't have medical. Oh, now they don't have prescription drugs because these people are cutting the funding to these programs so that they make more money. Like this is so messed up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or like giving money to their shareholders and like buying back stocks. And like, it's all such a money grab. And it's like, I like, you're not a hundred times more productive than your workers. Like there's, it's just this kind of like rich people helping themselves. And I think the workers are kind of made to feel disempowered. We've seen like, you know, the ways like the union movement has been really undermined and has really struggled to um, unionize like emerging fields especially like the like fast food sector and retail. There actually used to be a retail union downtown where all the clerks and all the little shops were in the same union. Uh, I don't know what happened to that, but like, I, you know, there are more innovative ways that I think we could as workers like collectively use our power. We've, we've also been kind of fed this lie that like, you know, we have to just do it for ourselves and you can't depend on anyone else. And, you know, we, you know, take ourselves up by our bootstraps and I don't think that's like really how it works like we do need to organize together like we do have more power than them but if we kind of keep competing amongst ourselves we'll never get ahead yeah I was saying in my last episode the issues are over here but the rich are making us look over here and like they're like oh it's and I said it before you know it's the people at the bottom you got to worry about it's like those people have nothing you have everything and you're just scapegoating the poor of course like it doesn't make sense make it make sense people who have nothing have nothing to take you know and then people are like oh people on serve they don't want to work now they're getting two thousand dollars you know, $2,000, a check doesn't get you very far. And that's probably, you know, the money that those people were getting from that, they were probably living on seven, eight, $900 checks. 
they, maybe they were finally using that money to pay off some of their debt that they had, some of their issues that they had. And, and maybe they're only now just getting back to like status quo, but oh, sorry, you got too much. So now you got to go back into the fucking hole. And the people who own the credit card companies who are the rich are saying, here's some money, but now I'm going to add interest so that now you owe me money for life. And it's just a vicious cycle. And it's like, unless you have money, it's hard to climb out of. And where are you getting the money from? Because you're, you're pinching at pennies here in New Flanders. People think, oh, like I go out on the oil rig and you're making good money. The money that you're making out on that oil rig is fucking pennies, pennies compared to what these people are making. And you, they, they make it seem like it's such a great thing. And because it's short term money, it's not good money. It's not sustainable money. Ah, it makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. Like, um, you we're seeing these kind of mansions pop up around the bay from the oil money but a lot of people are like thinking that they're going to make this big money for like a long term and so they're like going into a lot of debt but then of course when the price of oil drops they all get fired and you're like oh wait no i can't afford all of my bills and i think too like there's this idea that like people want to show off their money so they're buying the big trucks and they're buying the big mansions and it's like are we really like living or is this just another way that we're competing against each other um and do we really need our money to be happy like i think i think communities were a lot more cohesive when everyone was poor and like taking care of each other and now i think we're seeing like these kind of like um income divisions in our communities that like didn't exist I actually work for the On The Move Partnership at Memorial University, which looks at like the impact of uh, long distance commuting for like on communities. And so like you have less volunteers, it's like, it's really hard on families because you're away from each other for so long. And we're seeing actually a lot of people, a lot of men in the oil industry are, you know, uh, committing suicide, they're uh, depending on drugs and becoming addicted because it is like you are away from your community for long periods of time, you become really depressed and lonely. And as a man, you're not really allowed to talk about that. So, you know, you find other ways to kind of like alleviate that pain, but it, it is really harmful. And I don't think that's really talked about enough. Like there have been a few, I've heard there have been a few suicides on the rigs off our offshore here, but like they're totally swept under the rug. Um, it is, yeah, I think there's a lot more to the story than we're kind of being told. I feel bad, man. I feel bad. There is, Newfoundland is, it's such a special little place. I feel like it could be so much better. People don't even realize how much happier they could be if we do, if we do things to make our community stronger, like, you know, better transportation, like Metro bus transit, that could be better bicycle lanes for people that could be better fresh fruits, vegetables. Yeah. Like train movements. Like let's bring back the Newfie bullet, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I don't even care if it was slow. I used to back with a book, you know, why take, not? Some, take a little load off people who couldn't afford to drive across the island now because it's expensive. You know, maybe they could go on a little road trip with their family on a little train and like get across, go over to Lubson beach, maybe come back later on that day. Like we've lost our sense of community. And I think who we are because we've been put in a position of being in such bad debt that they're grasping at straws to make it better, but it's the wrong straws. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning, of course, like the COD moratorium and how like there were a lot of great jobs in community for people when it came to like fishing COD. 
and then we let these kind of like large trawlers come in and just absolutely destroy the ocean environment and you know it was an, a, a quite abundant you know sustainable resource and because you know i would argue like extractive capitalism and this idea of like short-term profits let's get everything while we can we we really uh harmed uh like long term our environment and then of course the oil industry is like not making the cod come back like we know like seismic testing especially is having like a real impact on like the smallest microorganisms in the environment and how that like impacts the entire food chain we even say like larger mammals it's like impacting their hearing which is really important for like navigating the ocean and and don't even talk about like the giant plastic islands that we're seeing growing because of all of the like garbage that we're creating i think we are in for a, a rocky road when it comes to uh, climate change and the way it's going to impact global supply chains and our ability to feed ourselves it's too bad because what was once like such a an important you know job uh way of feeding ourselves living more sustainably off the land we we really messed it up and we aren't you know taking it seriously we still haven't restored cod levels like the same way that like Iceland has. Iceland harvesters actually went out, stopped the trawlers from like coming into their areas and like they had like guns on their boats and they were like gonna shoot and there was like a standoff and they like forced those trawlers out. But here like you know we kind of we from what I understand we wanted to trade with these big trawlers like with the countries that they were coming from so we let them come in and destroy you know everything because Canada doesn't necessarily care about our cod fishery like they have other resources that they can trade and I do think being part of such a large country that has like you know we're sending our politicians thousands of miles away to make decisions about our communities and i don't think they really have a good understanding of like what's happening and they're making trade-offs that are really hurting people here yeah i don't think ugh, i've said it before too like i don't think people realize the impact that the smallest like you said microorganism has on our entire way of living and i don't think people realize how much we are all interconnected and people are mad because, you know, cod's not the way it used to be. And, oh, there's all these rules in place. But it, there's all these rules in place because we didn't care for it the way we should have cared for it. And now we're chasing our tails, being like, okay, here you can fish, but don't fish too much because we fucked it all up. And now they're not, you know, cod is not what it used to be. It used to be, like you said, in abundance. But we got these big trawlers coming in, sweeping up everything underneath. And there's a whole, like, they're supposed to do the catch and release thing. How many innocent animals get killed? because of this large like draggers and all these things coming up and then that affects other food chains and things that they weren't even initially even fishing for and then it's like this whole system like we're failing we're just so failing and it, it's so funny because back when we weren't so industrialized there were other things like you know living on the land and things like that people we weren't the strongest we weren't the fastest we weren't the this we weren't the that but now that we're so industrialized we don't need anyone to kill us because we are killing our ourselves and it's how can we be such how can we be the smartest you know quote unquote animal yet we don't need anyone to kill us like we, we don't need bears we don't need wolves like we are literally doing it to ourselves and people may look at you and me and they think we're crazy because we're just calling it like it is and we're like oh these people are full of shit I bet you in a few years when there's you know 
famine and and things like that and the climate change is is going to be so bad that they're going to be like what why didn't anyone tell us and we're going to be here like are you actually kidding me is this an actual joke like we you have been so blinded by these the government and things like that that we we need to start taking a stand we need to start making a change and like i was saying to miguel in the last episode i just hope that like this podcast like i don't know why like i love nursing and i love helping people and i've said that a lot, but I feel like I need to help people on a grander scale. And I don't know how, but I just feel like through this podcast and just speaking somehow, somewhere, like I said, someone will listen and, and it will create change. And I think if we start gathering all these people like that, that share similar views, because we are the next generation, we are the people that are coming up. If we want to change it, let's start going. Like, let's start collectively getting together and there's been people that have been doing this way longer than me, like who've been out there, who've been protesting. And I just want I just want to start to get everyone on board. I want everyone to kind of adopt that same, same view. And I, I just hope that the podcast kind of reaches people in that way and gets people listening because, you know, not everyone's going to go out digging and looking for that information, but I think it's like people like you and I and Miguel and just people speaking from experience and through investigating, this is what's going on and no one really talks about it. Yeah, I think it's hard for us in Canada, like in the West, to imagine that things are going to get bad because we're living in this just like extreme luxury. I, you know, like we can open our phones, we have food delivered to our door, we, you know, or we can order anything online, like the world is our oyster, we can go anywhere. You know, my grandparents, you know, grew up in the depression just 100 years ago, and it was like a totally different time. And I think, you know, we feel like this, these good times will never end. Um, but I think the good times are creating like so much pollution and, you know, we're destroying our environments at such a rapid pace and people feel so protected from it because yeah, like right now, it, you know, we live in a time of abundance, but that abundance has like a, such a high cost. And I think I do worry that we are, are not going to take, you know, these things seriously. And then it's just going to reach a crisis point and people are going to be kind of left on them by themselves. Cause I, I really don't believe that government is going to like be there when shit hits the fan, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's all going to come crashing down real hard and people aren't going to be ready for it. And I think that's what scares me the most. And I think that's why I'm so involved in the community. Cause at least like, I know that there are some people that I'm going to be able to rely on when, when she gets bad and we're trying to like, you know, cultivate some skills, learn how to like grow food, learn how to forage because yeah, I like, we really do believe that the way that we're living now is not going to go on for very long and we have to be like ready for when, when that, like when the global supply chains break down. And there's talk of it now. There's a, there's, it's, it's happening and you can see it. And it's so sad because we're so industrialized and we're so, like you said, we're so in this bubble and we're so self-removed from it that, you know, smaller places, less industrialized places, they've been experiencing it the hardest. And, but because we're so self-removed from that, we're not there. We don't understand. We are ignorant to it. And it, again, people don't care about stuff unless it's directly impacting them. And, and that's the sad part, because like we said, we're all interconnected. So guys, there are some main issues within Newfoundland. That's just the tip of iceberg, but it kind of all links back in. So the municipal nl.ca slash issue slash environment, uh, there are some uh, main topics. There was six main topics actually on this site. And I remember when we first kind of started talking a little while ago, uh, one of them actually that I will speak about. I was actually quite 
baffled by. Uh, so just number one. So just within Newfoundland, so reliable internet. Uh, so the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, so in rural, uh, remote and northern communities, households cannot connect with the rest of the world. They can't con connect with the rest of the country even. And that that's problematic because then these communities face barriers to growing and expanding. And just saying that, you know, like a reliable internet connection is not a luxury. It's a necessity for businesses, for people to stay connected, public safety, even public services. How, how are these people going to know what's kind of going on? We really saw it with like the Rogers outage that happened last weekend, how important the internet is and how dangerous it is that we are allowing these like private companies to really decide, like to maintain that infrastructure and decide like, who gets it and who doesn't like at this point i think we should be able to recognize that you know internet is a public good and not even to mention just like the way that the these corporations are like profiting off this public good and if it was something that the government did we could get better prices for it we could get better services but we've been kind of fed this lie that like corporations do things better which i i don't think is true like i i think government can be corrupt and um, inefficient for sure, but I also think that corporations can also be corrupt and inefficient and, you know, they like to feed us these lies that like, well, if we make profit, we'll be more competitive and it's like, well, but who, who does that serve? Does that serve the consumers or does that just serve the CEOs? Exactly. And like, I think even just like as simple as cell phone pricing, my sister in the US, like her cell phone bill is mere nothing. And, you know, I think the average phone bill, at least in Newfoundland, especially, you know, let alone if you're trying to keep up with the iPhone kind of game, it, you're paying at least $100. That's not including, that's why no one has landlines. So now you're stuck and I, with this cell phone and we've gotten away from people can always get a hold of you. And I think that's such a bad way of life that we've gotten into because at least when you had a house phone you could remove yourself from all you know everyone trying to get a hold of you all the time and like there is a plus of people getting hold of you all the time but we've we've given people so much access to us we've given up so much of ourselves for these corporations and for what you know yeah even actually, I think in Saskatchewan there is Saskatel which is like a publicly owned um, mobile service and because of that like all the private corporations are a lot cheaper there because they have to compete with this like public service, which is not making profit and it is like much cheaper. So I think that is like, it's like how are this model is exists, but like nowhere else are we really taking it seriously? There's no cohesiveness. Like it's just like, oh, here, try to keep it on down low so no one else knows about it. So the FCM, which is what I mentioned earlier, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, so they have like a one-page issued sheet. Uh, you can share it online. Uh, they tell you to visit your MP and discuss your camp or discuss your campaign. You can print and leave the FCMAs or FCMs uh, issue sheet with them. You can tweet them at FCM online at MunicipalNL, and they said use the hashtag uh, CDMMUNI and tell the community needs uh, universal broadband and sharing their campaign on social media. I think we need to start. We need to start advocating for ourselves and we need to start pushing back on these freaking corporations. Like I can't handle it. I can't. We can be living such a better life. So issue number two, like we were kind of saying, drinking water. There was actually a, a rural drinking water study conducted by Dr. Kelly. It was called the Exploring Solutions for Sustainable Rural uh, Drinking Water Systems, a study on rural Newfoundland Labrador drinking water systems. It can be found on the website Harris Centers. 
so they actually raised some major issues talking about the health risks associated with the untreated or an inadequately treated water uh, with disinfectant byproducts like DBPs. When organics are actually mixed, they mix the water with chlorine, which is commonly used in municipal water supplies to disinfect the water. Uh, chlorine use and misuse has also been identified as a prominent concern. They were saying that we need to start fixing the water infrastructures. We need to, to include uh, leak detection programs, access to all related blueprints as built. Uh, they said are lacking, especially in communities with uncertified water operators. And they're saying that's based basically because of insufficient funding and human resources at both the local and provincial levels to achieve sustainable drinking water systems. First of all, so we're polluting our waters. And then second of all, there's people that don't even have fucking access to clean drinking water in general, like any, like there's not, it's not even like it's full of chlorine, can't, can't get anything. And like, then they talk about the burden of the cost on the healthcare system. How can you possibly talk about that and be met and like try to make the healthcare system better when we are literally killing people and making people more sick. And like, they talk about like all these weird and wonderful cancers in Newfoundland and this is what we are doing to ourselves. This is what the government is doing to us. We need to, uh, we need people to have, why, why is housing clothes on your back and food and like clean drinking water? How is, how are we as a society have those things on? That is basic. Why don't we have that figured out? Yeah. And you know, we're supposed to live in this like rich country and yet yeah, people are being told to drink like yellow water. Um, I've done a lot of research about this, especially in Labrador. And people kind of felt like it was a way to force resettlement on them. Like the government wouldn't invest in clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. And the government doesn't want these like small towns. So they kind of felt like they were being pushed to move because yeah, the government is kind of just saying like, we're not going to provide you good services. So if you're going to live here, you're going to live like dirt and deal with it. And yeah, if you, we can resettle you and we'll give you like a one-time payout and you can move away from all your family and your kinship networks, you know, this life that you've like, you know, you've had for a long time so that like, you know, we can save a few dollars. Yeah. Is that fair for people? I think it's, it is pretty disgusting how, this is such a basic need and and Newfoundland is such a like we have so much water like we're so abundant there's really no need there's literally no freaking need and I don't think again we're talking about short-term fixes not having clean drinking water has such long-term higher costs like if you just want to base it on the money sure like the people get sick and then we're looking at hospital stays and getting these people in from rural communities instead of just giving the people what they need to survive. Oh, it makes everything so much worse. (laughs) So topic number three, climate change. This is what pissed me off the most because, and I said this to you when we first spoke, if you go in on this website and you click number three, climate change, environment, climate change, adaptation, there is nothing underneath it. There is nothing. I thought it was a glitch in my, in my computer. I went down through all of them. There is one under regional government. We'll talk about the, you know, single use plastics, internet, climate change has nothing. That's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think municipalities don't even know what to do. Like they're so under-resourced. I think they're just kind of like, I know some communities are building like barriers for like sea level rising and, and that kind of thing. But I think here, like our province is not taking climate change seriously. Like we're all in on the oil industry and 
just gonna like hope for the best uh and I think yeah the municipalities are really under-resourced and just like don't really know what to do we have seen like Portugal Cove St. Phillips has been doing like kind of taking climate change more seriously and thinking about like yeah how do we um protect ourselves from the storms that are coming and they're looking at like different waste management systems you know the province said I think like 15 years ago now that they were going to do like composting uh but like that has not happened and and maybe it's one of those things where it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to do it on a grand scale like maybe we should just give everyone a compost bin and show them how to do it because you know I think it, it gets kind of tricky when you do it when you try to do it industrially but yeah I think there are I don't know our government is so kind of like in a whole head in the sand about climate change I I think that it makes sense that the municipalities are just like they're like uh, I don't want to talk about it yeah but like we don't know what to do like no one else is taking it seriously and we're we want to maybe people are afraid to talk about it I feel like people in power again abusing the system and people have to follow a certain narrative and if you don't follow a certain narrative like how many times have you seen politicians or just regular people getting debt threats and all this fucked up stuff and it's like what are we doing what are we actually doing really saw that with, with Muskrat Falls like the people who were anti Muskrat Falls in 2010 when the project was first proposed like they were villainized and made to like look stupid and unpatriotic and now here we are 13 billion dollars later like double the cost estimate and the project like the it still doesn't work like they're still having software issues we still are not getting uh, electricity from Oscar Falls and you know those people maybe we should have listened to them but because the government didn't want to hear it you know everyone was told to fall in line and they did and they were also saying too like if Muscar Falls gets up and running like we're still gonna have to use Holy Road I think is what they said I was like so this fucking defeated the whole goddamn purpose of building this thing like yeah. what? And the electricity is going to cost like 60 cents a kilowatt hour, which is like six times more what we're paying now. Make it make sense. Like terrifying. Yeah. Really like, terrifying. no, no, thank you. Keep your muskrat files. Keep your th And these people are laughing because they've gotten all this money and they're like, fuck you. That's basically what these people are doing. Yeah. They like doubled our provincial debt and they're just like, <laughs> oh, well, you're going to have to pay for it. Like, sorry. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> yeah that person's in the corner being like hmm <laughs> so number four regional government so there was a joint working group on a regionalization report some recommendations so it was submitted to the government in january 2022 on february 2nd 2022 the minister of municipal and provincial affairs publicly released the report for us to read uh they just had some guiding principles which again uh, the provision of good local government for all residents, better and more efficient local services, more transparent and accountable local government. Hell yes. Greater cooperation, equitable taxation. Fair enough. Uh, enhanced municipal administration, integrating uh, or integrated planning and potentially achieving regional economic development. Not bad suggestions. Are they ever going to happen? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I do think like, yeah, communities are like under resourced and like it's all like these volunteer counselors. From what I understand, like because it's volunteer too, it's a lot of like kind of like the more well to do folks who are just kind of like power hungry and like resisting regionalization because they want to have all the control. Um, but we have seen like there have been successful regionalization movements. Um, and like, yeah, I think a lot of communities could work together better. Uh, I hope 
that they are able to and, and pool the resources more. But yeah, it's there's a lot of petty politics when it comes to uh, small towns, which is unfortunate. Petty politics is not not it, boys. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go over number five, single-use plastics. Finally, they had banned it. So 8 million tons of plastic is uh, finding its way into the oceans on an annual basis here at home. Almost 50% of all windborne litter escaping from landfills is actually plastic. Much of it was single-use plastics. Um, they actually had a band on them. Uh, and I was saying, I will never forget my first time doing the sugar loaf trail. Like I was like, so pumped. It was so nice. And then everyone knows if you've hiked it, you know, that feeling of when you get down by the dump and all the plastic is down through the trees and going into the ocean. And I'm not saying like a little portion of it. It's like a large, it's like the last part of the sugar loaf path. And you're like walking down and I will never forget the eerie feeling of being like, what are we doing, man? I was like, this is so fucked up that this is allowed and just plastic and plastic and garbage and plastic. It's like Robin Hood Bay. Like what is going on here? Like, yeah, it's, and I think it's tricky. Like, I think we really like honed in on single use plastics, but like people aren't bringing canvas bags anywhere. Like I, I have a store, you know, I have paper bags, people, they're not like, sure they'll decompose but like we are cutting down a lot of trees to use them like they still do have an environmental impact or it's so funny like there's that you know of course that video of the turtle with the straw in its nose that like made us all get rid of our straws but I have like I'll have like a paper straw in a giant plastic cup you know (laughs) and it's like is this really like making that big of a difference I think that um we were kind of just like honing in on this like one little thing when there's just this huge culture of consumerism and trash production that we're like kind of ignoring just to make ourselves feel like a little bit better because we like you know we ban the single use plastic bag and you know we can forget about all the other things that are just like also harming the environment Yeah, like the corporations have definitely put it back. Like, oh, guys, like you would be doing so much better if you just like stop using single use plastics, which, yeah, sure. Obviously, that would make things so much better. But again, you're distracting us from like the real issues, like agricultural waste having an effect on, uh, you know, climate change and things like that. And and again, like even fossil fuels, all the electronic waste, like it's exactly it's like oh but plastic bags sure and I'm not saying I'm like I'm kind of glad because it's like you know if we do have the ability to make reusable bags why have we not been doing so but again such a small small speck on such a grander scale and we need to tackle the bigger things as well as the smaller aspects number six is wastewater we were just talking about that a little while ago so they were saying that wastewater is the uh largest source of pollution to our water by volume around uh 600 billion it's like a blend of domestic and industrial commercial and institutional waste including chemicals pathogens pharmaceuticals and pollutants known to have environmental Mm -hmm. ecosystem and human health impact people they know, they know that they're, they're fucking us up and they don't care. So back in 2015, from what I read, this was a report. You can find it on this website that I mentioned earlier. They released a report saying that they were willing to upgrade, bring these uh, systems to like secondary level treatment systems. So a lot of the regulations that they had in place up till 2015 actually didn't really include like very small systems 
quote unquote. So like Northwest Territories, Nunavut, north of the 54th parallel in Quebec City and Newfoundland due to our Arctic climate conditions. Okay, fair enough. Sure. So they were saying that um, there were 206 wastewater systems, 117 municipalities. So of the 184, or of the 206, 184 were actually believed to have no or partial treatment. So that meant that only 22 of these systems were actually even up to secondary treatment. And they've been in place for a very long time. Like this is so fucked up. They actually, in 2015, offered to upgrade a lot of these systems. So they basically said, hey, you just apply for this like TA is what it was called. And these systems can get upgraded. So, (laughs) so funny. Owners of more than 200 systems in more than 100 communities across Canada did not even apply for the TA, even though they would have been eligible. So, and these systems have now been out of compliance since 2015 with both the WSER and the Fisheries Act. And little do people know that 84% of these systems are in Newfoundland, 84 fucking percent. And most of them are in smaller rural communities and they don't even have any treatment at all. That is a substantially high number I couldn't get over it I still can't get over it and like I mean from what I understand yeah the wastewater treatments are really expensive and I guess like the city councils like the town councils have like low capacity to apply for these grants but even in St. John's which is like the you know the biggest city in the province it was actually like a grassroots effort that started in the 90s to like clean the harbor because we were just like putting our wastewater directly into the harbor and people were like, this is disgusting. And it took like 10 years of activism before they, um, you know, built like a sewage treatment plant. Yeah, the harbor still kind of stinks. Um, I think it's gotten better, but I definitely would not swim in there. And yeah, like this is, you know, we're going out into this water and eating the cod, you know, like I, people are so disconnected from what's happening. I lived in France for a little bit. I lived with like hippies in France, like on these like farms. And they all had like compost toilets where you like, yeah, use the bathroom in this like bucket and then you put like sawdust on it and then you compost that. And I I do think like that is something that we need to think about more. I think it would be hard in a big city, but definitely like in a small town because yeah, these treatment plants are massive and we're using like so much water and is it really like the best way of going about it? You know, and you feel like could use more soil for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we need more soil, people. <laughs> uh, so I was saying on the website, you can actually send the feedback. So I love giving people the opportunity to send feedback to these people. So you can submit comments by email. So eu-ww at ec.gc.ca. You can contact them by telephone. Loves giving someone a good little ring. 819-420-7727. Or you can actually email them uh, another way called wastewater program or by mail, sorry. You can get them by mail, wastewater program, ECCC 351 St. Joseph Boulevard, Gatineau, Quebec, K1A0H3. So we got to get on that. We got to get out there. Okay, guys, our last topic that we want to shit on. 
is housing. So it's really funny because a lot of the things that I've read, so the demographics of housing here in Newfoundland, uh, especially recently, people can't find places to live and the demographics have changed from students, like 15 applications per house, like roughly, let's just say, to uh, everyone. Everyone's looking for housing. Seniors, families, single parents, everyone is looking for housing. Everyone's seen the picture of Kemo Tears. This person had an apartment viewing. There were people lined up the street. People are pulling up and they're, they're not even getting out to line up because they know that they're not going to get it because these people are offering to pay cash they're offering to pay way more than what the person's even offering so these again the people the poor people or poorer people are getting kicked out of the of even having an opportunity to get into these housing situations yeah it's so tricky like I think I think the Airbnb is a big part of it just like there isn't as much housing as there used to be so because people are you know obviously making a lot more money selling it to tourists and we're seeing like the way that like the low vacancy rate is driving up the cost of rent and there's no controls on that we have no legislation about like you know how much you can increase rent per year so landlords are able to just like double it and people can't necessarily find anything else and they just have to like bear that cost because housing is a basic need and it's interesting too because it's like the cost of rent is going up, but the cost of housing, if you like buy a house actually isn't that bad here. So if you have the money to do that, it's, you know, really great. But like, obviously a lot of people don't have that kind of like enough to put in a deposit. So they're being kind of forced to like reckon with this like awful rental market. And yeah, there was a story recently about a family who's just been like living in some park in a tent all summer. And I don't know like what their plan is for the fall because you know, you can get away with it in the summer. But yeah, the fact that we're starting to see like tent cities pop up, I think is really concerning. I don't necessarily think, I haven't really seen the government take that seriously at all. But I think, yeah, the situation in St. John's is one thing. I know also like Labrador, especially like up North, there just like isn't enough housing and like people are living in very overcrowded housing. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's a, situation that people are dealing with like everywhere and I yeah I think our government just like doesn't care it's so frustrating I just actually moved back from Nova Scotia where like a two and three bedroom house was like $3,200 a month I was like man I work as a nurse and I wouldn't even be able to you know I someone would say I have good income but like I can't I would never be able to afford that no one can afford to live like that and I think we're going to end up getting back to a time where you know, maybe two and three families are going to have to be living in a house together. Like you said, that overcrowding, that overliving, because no one can afford to live at on their own. And they were saying like for a population or a province where there's a lot of debt, the market for housing is so high. There's like you said, the vacancy rates are going up and no one has anywhere to live. And people are, the banks are selling people these houses when the, you know, the interest rate was so low, everyone's getting houses, but you know, in a couple of years when people go to renew their mortgage, they're going to foreclose on these houses because they can't afford it now that the, you know, the interest rate goes from like, say the lowest of like, what was it? One point, I don't know, let's just say 1.9, whatever. It's going to go up to 5%. How are you going to afford a mortgage if you're just barely affording it now? And slumlords, oh my God. Like, let's just talk about slumlords. How many stories have I read on Twitter of people being, you know, kicked out of their houses, rent going up, people coming in, like breaking windows, breaking down doors. Like, it's insane what we are doing as a society. Yeah, there's a big problem here with like privatized shelters where- people who say, yeah, I got out of prison and stuff are, don't have housing. And instead of like funding, you know, good 
housing for these people in this like really horrible situation, trying to like better their lives. We have allowed these like private individuals to like kind of have these like boarding houses, which are like not safe. They're like not well kept. And the government is paying them a hundred dollars a night for each person. Like that is the kind of money that like you just give people housing, you know? But obviously there are some deals being made behind the scenes to kind of prop that up. I did, I've been wanting, there's this book that um, ISER Press, like the university, the Moral Universities Press came out with um, that I've been wanting to read about how there used to be a lot of more housing cooperatives in St. John, but from what I understand, there aren't any left. And I'm just like, how, what was that model look like? What happened to it? Like, how can we collectively own housing? I think is something that I would really like to learn more about. I, I know like, cooperatives in general used to be more popular and have kind of like fallen out of fashion but I think they are really more like empowering way for people to organize and trade and yeah I would like to see more emphasis on uh, cooperatives here. Yeah I think that's uh, such a cool concept and like you said like just getting back to how did we get away from that it seemed to work how is it not now what has been going on behind the scenes to kind of force that out and a lot of the people who have housing in Newfoundland they do get a lot of subsidizations from the government especially if you're offering to do like low income you know again I think it's just a whole messed up system and we need to figure it out and we need to figure it out quickly because we're going to see a lot of people not having anywhere to go and I remember reading a story of a woman and she said you know I have two kids I'm a single mom no one's going to rent to me I don't have two thousand dollars to pay out and you know my mom was a single mom for a long time and I I just like, I can't imagine a single parent working. My dad, he was on disability and it's just so fucked up. So fucked up. People shouldn't have to jump through loops and, and jump over these massive barriers just to have a place to sleep at night. That's safe and warm. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. It's yeah. Our, we got a, we live in a broken society, but I think we could fix it. I think we could fix it. I know. That's why I want to talk about it and bring highlights to it because I think that we can collectively come together and fix it. But in order to fix something, we need to accept where we lack and we need to take on that burden and we need to figure out where we can go from there. Just to kind of loop back earlier when we were talking about domestic violence, sexual violence, whatever the case might be. Uh, I just want to put out there that there is an nsexualviolence.com. There's a website for any of you guys who want it. There's a, a line that operates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and is toll-free province-wide. Uh, the number is one 726 They offer like the same program, like at St. Clair's, uh, one of the hospitals that I work at that do the same program. They offer like a uh, non-judgmental confidential in-person support through their office in St. John's, their partner with uh, some public legal uh, information. So the Association of Newfoundland, the Journey Project, a variety of services can be accessed through the project, including lawyer referrals, court, uh, confidence, third-party reporting. Uh, there's also the Thrive, which you can get them at 709-747-7757, uh, like a 24-hour crisis support and information line, uh, 1-800-726-2743 and Bridge the Gap. You guys can also access them for some supports. Carrie, I want to thank you for coming on this. We've we've stuffed a lot of information in one episode, but I think we got it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a really great chat. No problem. I'm so glad that you came on and hopefully we have you on again. And maybe there will be some changes that we can talk about between ourselves, amongst our communities. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for tuning in and we will see you next week.